0: Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Hey there, and welcome to church. Thank you for tuning in around the city, around the state, around the country, or even around the world. It's so great to have you with us. I'm Pastor Matt. I would love to meet you next time we're able to meet back together in person. We have a little better idea now of when that will be. Uh, We're targeting about mid to late June. Uh, You can see all the details at BibleCenterChurch.com. At the top left corner of our website, you'll see our our campus reopening plan. Feel free to click on that and see the different phases uh, that we're currently working through. But I look forward to meeting you in person. And church family, I look forward to being back together with you in person uh, very, very soon. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, go ahead and open with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. You can Google it if you like. If you're new to church, uh, the book of Exodus is actually the second book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. We're going to continue our series as we go through the entire book this summer. The series is entitled Divergent. What in the world do we do now? We're actually walking through uh, the Exodus with the people of God about 3,400 years ago, and we're learning what they're learning. We're trying to see what God told them during times of transition, uncertainty, and confusion, and apply that to our, our current situation of coming out of this pandemic of transition, uncertainty, and confusion. But in today's message, we're going to see from Exodus chapter 3, a message that I've entitled, Joining God in His Mission. Joining God in His Mission. What does God want us to do as we emerge from a pandemic? What we saw a couple weeks ago, that God wants us to see grace in the people around us. We learned last week that God's grace is greater than our mistakes And today we're gonna see that God wants us to continue to pursue his mission, to be on mission, even though this isn't an ideal time. Actually, if you think about it, there's never really been an ideal time to fulfill the mission of God. If it's not one thing, it's another And so in this message, we're going to keep it really, really simple. In addition to telling the true story of Exodus chapter three and partially Exodus chapter four, I'm just going to give you one thing that God wants you to know and one thing that God wants us to do. One thing God wants us to know and one thing God wants us to do. Let's go ahead and dive in Exodus chapter three, starting in verse one. It says, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mount of God. If you're taking notes, a really cool fact about this particular time is that Moses is 80 years of age. If you read Acts chapter 7, we find that Moses was 40 years of age when he committed murder and had to flee to the wilderness. He fled to Midian. And 40 years passed where he actually tended sheep in the wilderness. And so according to Stephen in Acts chapter 7, Moses is 80 years of age. One of our members messaged me last week and she just wanted to let me know that, that it's so encouraging for her at her particular age and, and I do not consider her to be elderly by any stretch of the imagination, but she is a few years older than me and she wanted to let me know how encouraging it is to know that God still used Moses and actually just began to use Moses at the age of 80. And so no matter how old you are, you're never too old for the grace of God. It says here that Moses' father-in-law is named Jethro. Now, last week in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 18, we learned that his father-in-law was named Ruel or Reuel, however you want to say it. But here, it says that his father-in-law is named Jethro. Why the difference? Well, there's two different reasons, possibly, two possibilities. One is that it was very common by this point in human history uh, for people to have two names. I have three names. My names are Matthew, David, Friend. But it's possible that these were his two names. Another theory that I actually lean towards is that some believe that Jethro was actually a title and that Reuel was actually his proper name. And this makes sense because Jethro in Hebrew means Your Excellency, or His Excellency, so Moses was trying to do the wise thing and call his father-in-law, Your Excellency. Uh, My father-in-law is a member of our church. I love him dearly. He's one of my close friends. Uh, But dad, if you're watching this, this, I apologize, but I'm not gonna call you Your Excellency as much as I love you and thank the world of you. But Moses, being much wiser than me, called his father-in-law, Jethro, again, Your Excellency. And it says that he was in the wilderness at Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is the same name or another name for the same place that we call Mount Sinai. As you go throughout the entire Old Testament, you'll see that these two words are used interchangeably, Horeb and Sinai. John Calvin believed that the eastern side of the mountain might have been referred to as Mount Horeb, but perhaps the second peak on the western side of the mountain was Mount Sinai. That's just a theory, but it's definitely referring to the same region. Let's notice what happens in chapter 3 and verse 2. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now imagine with me that uh, you go out back, maybe to your back deck or to your back patio, and you're gonna cook on the grill. And so you get the grill fired up, maybe you get the propane just right or you get the charcoal just right or whatever kind of grill you have and you go back inside to get the raw burger. So you put them all on a plate and you're bringing the the burgers, maybe the dogs or the brats back out to the patio or to the deck and you open the door and you notice that over your grill is this hovering fire. Now at first you think, well, maybe something's wrong with the grill. But as you get closer, you recognize that this this fire has a peculiar shape. And then all of a sudden, something mysterious happens right there on your back deck. The fire starts speaking to you. Imagine the Lord himself begins speaking to you through the fire. Just to imagine that gives us some idea what Moses might have felt. Now, to see something on fire in the wilderness wasn't uncommon. There were brush fires regularly, and so Moses certainly wouldn't have thought anything of it at first. But the thing that made this unique was that the the bush wasn't consumed, it wasn't burning up. Now, we'll hear all kinds of strange theories about what this possibly means, but let us not fall prey to the strange theories. This is narrative, this is not poetry. This is not some kind of a Hebrew song where God is speaking figuratively. This is narrative. And so God tells us that this literally happened. It wasn't a mirage. It wasn't a Bedouin campfire. The Lord spoke through a burning bush that wasn't consumed. You say, well, Matt, how is that possible? How is it possible that that, that re- I mean, are we, are we really to take this literally? I want to say that we live in a strange universe that is more than natural. We live in a universe that is supernatural. Our God is not bound by natural law. We see time and time again throughout the book of Exodus that God isn't confined to our natural laws. This is what C.S. Lewis referred to as the deep magic from before the dawn of time. In other words, if, you, if, you can, if we can wrap our minds around God's creation, there's not a whole lot else that we have to stretch to wrap our minds around. If we can truly believe that there was nothing, nothing, and that God created, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, God created out of nothing, then everything else will fall into place like dominoes. If God truly created the world, then believing in miracles is no problem. If God created the world, then believing that he can speak to us out of a a burning bush is no problem. Believing that Jesus can rise from the dead, that's no problem because God isn't governed by our laws. Our world is much stranger than we may realize. Let's look in verse seven and let's see the heart of God for his people. In verse seven, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now go, or so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh, to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. In these verses, we see the affection of God for his people. God saw them. God was concerned for them. God literally, the wording there is, he felt their pain. It's the same idea that we see in the New Testament with Jesus, that Jesus was looking upon the people and was moved with compassion, Notice that it doesn't say God was only concerned that they go to heaven when they die. But in this passage, that was certainly a concern, but God was also concerned with their physical well-being. He was concerned that these people were oppressed. The Egyptians are oppressing them. Now, what kind of oppression were they experiencing? Really, there's four kinds of oppression clearly seen that they felt. First of all, they were in political oppression the Hebrews were an immigrant ethnic minority in a large imperial state. They had come originally to Egypt as famine refugees 430 years prior, and they found a welcome. But the government policy did a U-turn, an economic asylum turned into a prison house of political hatred, unfounded fears, exploitation, and discrimination. And so here in this verse, we see that God actually cared for them, was burdened for their political oppression. God wanted them to establish a free nation where permanent slavery and political oppression were intolerable so that the promise to Abraham could be fulfilled. God did liberate them, we're gonna find out here in a few weeks, but God addressed their political oppression. God was also concerned for their economic oppression. The Israelites were being exploited in slave labor on land not their own for a government not their own. For the economic benefit of Egypt, Egypt was using them as slaves for their agricultural projects and for their construction projects. But it wasn't enough for God just to relieve them in Egypt. No, God wanted to pull them out of Egypt and to establish their own land with their own economic system that would outlaw oppression within Israel itself. God was concerned for them economically. God was also burdened for them socially. We saw two weeks ago in Exodus chapter 1 that the Egyptian government had invaded their family life and took away their fundamental right to have male children. The government decided who should live and who should die. It is always, even in 2020, it is always a dangerous thing if the government decides who should live and who should die outside of Romans chapter 13, depending on your view of capital punishment. But it is definitely a dangerous thing for the government to decide what infant should live and what infant should die. It is a dangerous thing if the government ever sticks its fingers in in what senior citizens should live or what senior citizens should die or what person with disabilities should live or whether or not they should die. God was concerned for them socially, politically, economically, and God was also concerned for them spiritually. We see at the end of chapter four that one of the reasons that Moses told Pharaoh to let the people go was so that they could go and worship freely. You see, Pharaoh had them making bricks and blocks seven days a week uh, from sunup to sundown. And so uh, for what life that they had left, they had certainly had no time to worship. And so all of it fit together. And God comes to Moses to reveal his mission. Moses, I'm calling you. I want you to be the one to lead my people out of oppression, all sorts of oppression. Here's the big idea. Here's the main idea that we see about God's mission. This is what I believe God wants you to know today. God is on a mission to heal the world spiritually and physically. God was then and God is now on this mission to heal the world spiritually and physically. Another way to say this is that physical needs and spiritual needs are bound together in the heart of God. God's mission is both spiritual and physical. God's heart aches for the spiritual pain and the physical pain of his people. God hurts when people hurt, whether their pain be spiritual or physical. God is on a mission to heal the world spiritually and physically. Now we see this in the life of Jesus. Thankfully, Jesus preached the gospel and he he taught God's word everywhere he went. But over and over again, we see Jesus healing the sick and giving sight to the blind and raising the dead and feeding the hungry. Every miracle that Jesus ever did alleviated some type of human suffering. Every single miracle. Well, even the bellies, if you think about it, the bellies that Jesus fed still got hungry again. The people that Jesus raised from the dead still died again. The blind that Jesus gave sight to eventually lost their sight again, even if just in death. So Jesus wasn't doing these things for permanence, but he was doing these things as an illustration. He was saying, do you wanna know what the gospel's like? Do you wanna know what the spiritual good news is like? Well, it's a lot like a blind man being given his sight. It's a lot like a woman being raised from the dead. So they were pictures, they were illustrations. Jesus didn't just pull rabbits out of the hat, but instead he did things to alleviate human suffering. This is the message of Romans chapter eight. If you're taking notes, you wanna write down Romans chapter eight, verses 18 through 21, where God promises to, to one day liberate the earth from its groaning, from its pain. This is the message of Colossians one, verses 19 and 20, where it says that the reason Jesus died on the cross was not only to save us individually, not only to save the church corporately, but in Colossians 1:19 and 20, it was to actually free the cosmos. It was to bring reconciliation and peace to all of God's creation. There's so much wrapped up in the cross of Christ, more than just our individual salvation. This is the message of Revelation chapter 21, verses one through four, when God's word tells us that God one day is gonna create a new heavens and a new earth. It tells us that he's gonna live with his people forever and God is gonna wipe every tear from our eyes. You see, the gospel message again is more than just we need salvation, but the gospel message is this grand story. It's this large story from the beginning of time as we know it to the end of time or eternity as we know it. We see in the scriptures that God creates. God created all things, but unfortunately, sin broke all things, but Jesus came to save all things, for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again to bring salvation, but even that isn't the end of the story. For those of us who call ourselves Christians, that's just the beginning of the story because the gospel teaches us that God not only creates and sin breaks and Jesus saves, but also the Bible teaches us that Jesus transforms. Jesus is transforming us day by day into his image, through his word, through prayer, through trials, through the people of God. And one day, God is going to restore all things to himself. If you read the last two chapters of the Bible, the last two chapters of the Bible remind us that this is has always been God's mission. He's gonna heal the world spiritually and physically. Now, what do we need to do with this? If we have this knowledge, if we believe it, what should it lead us to do? I believe it should lead us to do this one thing. Let's join God in his mission to heal the world spiritually and physically. Let's join God in his mission. Let's not try to be God. Only God can actually ultimately bring restoration to the world, but let's join God in his mission and do the kinds of things that he is doing. Let's do the kinds of things that Jesus did when he lived on the earth. Let's let's do the kinds of things that God did through Moses in the Exodus. We could say it this way. Since people are both spiritual and physical, our mission is also spiritual and physical. It's impossible to separate spiritual ministry from physical ministry. When God calls us to meet someone's spiritual needs, he also invites us to be willing to meet their physical needs as much as we're able. If God loves people spiritually and physically, then he invites us to love people spiritually and physically. Now, I knew a little of this going into this week, but it has been like a, it's been a a buffet to study God's word and see how the Exodus is is used in ways that I never even imagined throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, to remind us of God's mission. I love what one theologian says, Christopher Wright, about this passage. He says, an Exodus-shaped salvation demands an Exodus-shaped mission. Our commitment to mission must demonstrate the same broad totality of concern for human need that God demonstrated in what he did for Israel. And it should also mean that our overall motivation and objective in mission be consistent with the motivation and purpose of God as declared in the Exodus narrative. One way that Jesus made the distinction or showed the integration is that Jesus said he gave us the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. So in other words, we're called to make disciples, spiritual disciples of Jesus, but we're also called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And even if we look at the Great Commission, not only are we to make, quote unquote, just spiritual disciples, but we're to teach them to do everything Jesus has told us to do, which includes love God and love our neighbor. Christopher Wright continues in the same book. He says, in the Exodus, God responded to all the dimensions of Israel's need. God's momentous act of redemption did not merely rescue Israel from political, economic, and social oppression and then leave them to their own devices to worship whom or whomever they pleased, nor did God merely offer them spiritual comfort of hope for some brighter future in a home beyond the sky while leaving their historical condition unchanged. No, the Exodus effected real change in the people's real historical situation and at the same time called them into a real new relationship with the living God. This was God's total response to Israel's total need. It's the same thing that Jesus taught in Matthew 23, 23. If you're taking notes, you want to write that down. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says we're not to, we're not to forsake the weightier matters of the law, which includes showing mercy and doing justice. Another passage that proves this or that really speaks to this point is Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. That's the passage where Jesus says, if we feed somebody in Jesus's name, it's as if we fed Jesus himself. If we clothe somebody, give somebody a cup of cold water in Jesus's name, it's as if we've done that to Jesus himself. And this no doubt rubbed off on Jesus's family, his his biological family. His half-brother was James, the author of James in the New Testament. And his half-brother James wrote in James 1.27, he said that true religion and undefiled is to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. In other words, True religion is to serve and love people the way Jesus served and loved people. Now, on the personal level, I have seen so many of you do this through this pandemic. I've heard stories of, of children serving senior saints, and I've heard stories of senior saints serving the families or, or serving children. I've heard of students serving students, neighbors serving neighbors, coworkers, you serving other coworkers, I've, I've heard of, of customers serving the owners of restaurants who are struggling and, and customers doing all they can to help those restaurants stay alive. It has truly been a beautiful thing to watch the Church of Jesus Christ, not just Bible Center, but the Church of Jesus Christ rise up during this pandemic and serve so many in so many ways. Specifically, I'm thinking about ways that God has used our church in our community by his grace the maker center is one instance more and more we just continue to talk about god's grace on the maker center we still have our plans for our classes and we have our driver's ed instruction all ready to go we have all that in place but during the pandemic we had to switch and we've seen so many of you through the maker center spend hours and spend thousands of dollars making our 3d helping our 3d printers make thousands of masks and shields for our local doctors, nurses, uh, frontline workers, healthcare professionals, uh, police, firemen, those in our, our ambulatory services, all because you have a burden to believe, I'm convinced, messages like this. We've seen through the Makers Center Over 500 robes made for a local nursing home. Actually, the the robes being made into full-sleeved robes that's required during this pandemic. Just the other day, I heard about many of you restocking the Baby Steps unit at Thomas Hospital. I've heard of many of you providing meals for those who work at CAMC, uh, of, of edible arrangements being given just this past week to every nurse's station in all three CAMC hospitals. Now being the husband of a nurse, that moves me. Just to think about what God is using you to do, not just individually, but also collectively as a church. Many of our Bible center school families partnered together to be able to provide meals. uh, And then some of our church families jumped in as well for 38 different servers, people who work in the restaurant industry who were out of work, to provide for each of them a week's worth of groceries for them and their families and to deliver those groceries. I just heard today of one of you driving one of our ladies who comes to the Maker Center who's connected with Recovery Point, driving her up to Martinsburg uh, for a court hearing so she can move on with her life and the new life that Jesus is giving her, but helping make sure that all of her bases are covered. You continue to provide meals twice a month for Union Mission, specifically at Crossroads. And even when it was closed, through Creative Ways, making sure people in that area receive meals. Serving meals once a month at the Sojourner's Shelter. This past week, I heard of where Mountain Mission called us, uh, looking for some help and, and for 10 different single moms who are out of work and their children are out of school and you rose to the occasion to serve with Mountain Mission. And not only did those single moms get some things that they needed, but they also, their, their kids, or excuse me, a couple of weeks ago, their kids received crafts that they could make for their moms on Mother's Day. Now that may sound like a small thing, But I believe this is exactly the kind of thing that Jesus meant when he said, let your good works shine, do good works, let your light shine so that people can see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, the rest of this chapter and into the next tells us that Moses had a lot of excuses. I've written those excuses on your sermon notes. Again, you can get them at BibleCenterChurch.com forward slash live. Moses had five excuses and God had five answers. But in the end, Moses obeyed. And as we conclude our time together, I'd like you to look with me at chapter four and verse 20. After all this dialogue with God, it says that Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. That's gonna be important in the next couple of weeks. If, if I could picture this, if I could paint this somehow, I would put the caption something like this. I would make the caption our main point. God is on a mission to heal the world spiritually and physically. God is at work in his mission and God invites us to be a part of it. Now, as we close, I'm thinking about not only the mission of God, but the fuel behind the mission is what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've talked a lot about it earlier in the message and and I wanna end with it. This gospel message is the truth that this God who is perfect the God who created us for innocence and perfection, who demands perfection from us, also recognizes that we have broken, we have failed his law. And that God of heaven sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a sinless life, to suffer and die on the cross as the substitute for our sins, absorbing the judgment we rightfully deserve, to rise again, to ascend back into heaven and to give forgiveness and righteousness and his spirit at the moment anyone repents and believes. You know, this week I was thinking about Moses and when God was telling Moses these truths that were very heavy, very hard to understand, Moses wanted a sign. You can read all about it in Exodus chapter four. Next week, we're gonna see that Pharaoh, uh, when he's confronted by Moses, is going to require a sign. He actually requires 10 signs that become the 10 plagues. But you know, as we're thinking about even our own faith or lack of faith, God is so amazing that God has given us a sign for our faith. Now, there's a lot of reasons that we can believe in the gospel, that we can believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again the third day there's a lot of reasons we could talk about the how the the accuracy of the bible how the bible the rationale of the bible fits together 40 different authors used to write the bible on three different continents over a period of almost 2000 years and yet there's not one contradiction yet there're not not one single error we could talk about changed lives Uh, We could talk about the historical evidence of the apostles and those who came after the apostles, the people who walk with Jesus when Rome told them that they had to recant or die in the first century. They said, we can't help but stick by what we've seen and heard. Now, if Jesus really didn't rise from the grave, why in the world would so many of them be willing to give their lives? And that tradition being passed down, that message being passed down to us today. But all those things I've mentioned, that's not the greatest sign. The greatest sign Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 40, it's what's pictured here. The greatest sign Jesus said is an empty tomb. This particular picture this particular place we had the privilege of visiting it uh, in Jerusalem, just outside of of Old Jerusalem, uh, here a few months ago. This is the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. As you read the New Testament, you find that Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb, which we know was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. This is. They, they have identified this tomb as the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, there's two or three other places where some traditions say Jesus was buried, but this is the most likely place because of the identification of Joseph of Arimathea. And to stand at this spot and to see the, the rocks hewn and, and to see the, the chisel marks and to see the, places where, the place where Jesus' body would have been laid and that three days later, Jesus arose from the grave and came out of this particular hollowed out rock. Jesus rose from the grave. He tells us in the book of Matthew, the empty tomb is the only sign you need. And so with that understanding, I beg you to hear the words of Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Give your life, give your heart to Jesus Christ today. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you for the good news. Thank you for the mission that arises out of that, that emerges from this good news. And God, we pray today, Christians all over this city, all over this valley, we pray for those who are hearing this message right now who don't yet know you as Savior, that you would open their heart to faith and they would believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that they would give their lives to the Lordship of Jesus and let you take full control. It's in his name we pray, and amen. I'd love to encourage you, if you have questions, to text the word connect to the message or the number you see here on the screen. Our online campus pastor, Pastor Matt Garrison, would love to help. God bless. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.